Hey, I'm Jason Gray. Hey, this is Sarah Gross. Hey, I'm Andrew Osinga. Hi, this is Michael Carr. Hey, this is Andrew Peterson, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. And this is me, so let's have some exciting music. Who is me, you ask? Well, me is Rick Lee James, and this is my podcast, Voices in My Head. We've got a great show for you this week, so stay tuned. If you hear this voice today, do not turn in the window. Carissa Knox Sorrell is a wife, a mother, a writer, and an educator who loves books, coffee, early mornings, good friends, and the ocean. She grew up a preacher's kid and a missionary kid in the Church of the Nazarene, but as you're going to hear about today, she had a different kind of journey that God took her down as the years went by. She has a new book that's going to be coming out soon, we hope, called Transfigured Faith. She's written many essays, which you can go to her website online, and we will tell you more about that in just a few minutes, but she's a fantastic writer. She has a great story to share, and it's really just my privilege uh, to welcome Carissa Knox Sorrell to the Voices in My Head podcast today. Carissa, welcome. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's a privilege for me, too. So you've got a great podcast, and I'm excited to be on it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And now let me just real quick so listeners will know where they can find you real fast. Well, just tell them your website. I think it's just Carissa Knox uh, or chrisandnoxsorrell.com, but I think I might have that wrong, too. So maybe nope, you... that's, Yep, you're right, chrisandnoxsorrell.com. Okay. And I do have a writer Facebook page. You can search for me on Facebook as, as well. And I'm on Twitter at kksorrell. Great. Um, I was impressed. I actually hadn't gone to your bio page before, and we were just talking pre-show, so listeners won't know this, but we're talking about your new book that's going to be coming out, which uh, will have some of what we're going to be discussing today. But I was very impressed. Uh, I, I didn't realize all of the different places you had written for, um, whether it be blogs or nonfiction essays, anthologies, and poetry and things like that. So you are really quite mm-hmm. prolific in your writing. So yeah, I've um, a few years ago I went back to school and got my MFA in creative writing and um, haven't made a dime off my writing yet since then. But um, <laughs> you know, basically, I really just wanted to um, get back to writing and hone my craft. And I really, you know, I had a wonderful um, ended up being about three years in the program. And so, you know, sometimes I'll write, I'll send things to like more literary journals and sometimes it's, you know, like Catapult Magazine. It's an online kind of Christian magazine. So, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to get my work out there in different places. Sure. Well, that's great. I've, I've enjoyed what I've gotten to read and I thought I'd read a lot of it and then I realized, oh man, she's got lots of stuff <laughs> I haven't read. I'm reading this bio. So, yeah. uh, that's really good stuff. But, but, well, one day, you know, you'll be like me and you'll make, about exactly a dime writing yeah you know? right. so i you know <laughs> so it just kind of depends on uh, the way that the whole internet is and nobody wants to buy anything anymore but you know they yeah. want it all free but um well let's do a little bit of discussion here and just so listeners know um i met you first back when we were at dear old tnu Tureka nazarene university and uh you we were both uh, i guess in the same class there and uh, i i met so many good people had so many good relationships uh, through the years and, and connections. And then through things like face, uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and things like that, um, I came across 
uh, old friends and came across your site and found some of your writing. And I just thought, wow, uh, I've got to have Carissa on the show to talk about some of uh, the deep things that God has brought her through and, and maybe just to hear some of your stories. So um, this is sort of my way of, of getting to catch up. But I have had a lot of interest in the Orthodox Church uh, over the last few months. I've had some some good friends um, that have become a part of that. Uh, I've uh, the uh, our I believe it's Our Life in Christ is a podcast that I've listened to for a while. And it's, uh, I think it's obsolete now, but they have like 300, 400 episodes. And so I'm just slowly listening through <laughs> as I yeah. go along. And it's fantastic. I, I love what they're saying. And, um, and a lot of it, I, I really am, am finding like, I'm, I'm real proud that a lot of the Wesleyan heritage, uh, that is so influenced by the Orthodox faith. And, and I'm so glad of that because I'm like, oh, good. We have that common ground but then there's other things i think oh i wish we had that you know yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. where i come from so I, i'm gonna quit babbling right now and <laughs> let and let you actually talk because that's what people want to hear but i'd love for you to just start by telling us your background and growing up in the church of the nazarene some of our listeners are nazarene some of them have no idea what a nazarene is so uh, go ahead and, and you know if you have any good memories bad memories funny stories whatever just kind of comes to mind we'd love to hear it Okay. Um, well, I grew up, born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, I think I was actually, I was thinking about this as you were talking fourth generation or maybe fifth generation, but um, I, even like my great-grandparents went to the Nazarene Church. So, um, And my dad was a Nazarene pastor um, during most of my childhood, and then um, my parents became Nazarene missionaries as well. So from the age of 11, at 11 years old, I moved to um, Bangkok, Thailand, and my parents were missionaries there in Thailand, and I was pretty much there until I graduated from high school. Um, so, you know, very much um, just grew, grew up running the halls of my father's church, and when I was a little girl, I remember he pastored a real small church at one point, and, um, you know, they let me sing in the choir when I was eight, and, and things like that. Um, so it, it, wonderful memories. Um, Thailand is just will always have a place in my heart. Um, I absolutely loved living there. Um, and we had, you know, we grew a Nazarene church there as well. And my parents helped start a Bible college, a Nazarene Bible college there. Wow. Um, and, you know, just, I was very much accepted by like my youth group as a, um, as a teenager, very much welcomed, even though I was tall and white, had a long nose and, you know, I probably <laughs> spoke their language imperfectly. Um, they, they showed me love and they welcomed me. Um, so I, you know, I, I had a great upbringing. Um, and I was just really blessed, I feel like, to be able to go and live overseas, to live among people who were different from me. You know, I went to school with kids whose religion was different. They were from different countries. They were from different language backgrounds and different cultures. But I learned how to get along with them and, and to appreciate them. Hmm. So, you know, it's just that that was just a wonderful thing. Um, as far as some good memories, you know, I feel like the Church of the Nazarene, um, which for listeners who don't know, it's it's a, a Wesleyan um, denomination. Um, so their beliefs will be similar to like Wesleyan or Methodist, probably. Um 
but um, it's really, I feel like the Nazarene Church is this worldwide family and, that I was a part of. And, and I feel like I still am a part of to some mm-hmm. extent because I still keep up with a lot of people on Facebook and that kind of thing. But um, And especially as a missionary's kid, all the other missionaries on the field that were Nazarene that worked with my parents became my aunts and uncles and their kids were like my cousins and all kinds of Nazarene people would come in and visit us in Bangkok. And so whenever, like every four years, I would go to General Assembly, I would get to meet up with all these people and get all these hugs. And, um, you know, it just really felt like this this loving family. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I loved about it. You just can't get away from us. That's the... uh, No, I cannot. I <laughs> Try cannot. as you may. Oh, that's great. <laughs> any, any funny stories of, you know, you've um, had a lot of experience from not only America, but Thailand or anything like that that... Yeah, um, I know one of the favorite stories we tell is one time in Bangkok, we were at the zoo, and um, my parents, uh, we were looking at the monkey, it was some kind of monkey, and so my dad was going, look at the monkey, look at the monkey, and just a few paces away from us was this Thai family, and their dad was going, look at the foreigners, look at the foreigners. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, we were, I think now, probably today, Bangkok is a lot more um, diverse, but, you know, back then, you know, white people were um, just kind of very different. Um, yeah. They weren't used to seeing us, and they weren't used to seeing us try to speak Thai either. So um, uh-huh. my, I had a, a younger brother that was with me in Bangkok, and um, all the funny things happened to, to Will, to my brother. Um, he got... He literally actually got picked up by an elephant once when we were there, um, wow. by an elephant's trunk hanging upside down. Um, and, wow. uh, yeah. So elephants are a big deal in Thailand. They're like the national, I think they're the national animal. Um, and you can, you know, sadly they have used some of them for like tourist attraction type things. Um, but so, you know, we would go, we would take visitors to go see the elephants, do their tricks and all that. And, um, then they would usually sell like, you know, bunches of bananas or bamboo and, um, you could feed the elephants. And so he was walking past this little elephant, you know, with his bamboo in his hand and the elephant wanted the bamboo and he grabbed my brother by the, by the, by the leg. So, (laughs) um, and you know, one time we were at, um, so back then they would, they would have, sometimes you would see people out on the street, like vendors or whatever, with some kind of animal on a chain. Um, and they might try to make the animal do some kind of trick or something. Um, and uh, so we were actually at an amusement park, and there was a guy there with, with some kind of little monkey on a chain. And the monkey actually stole my brother's glasses. Like, he oh. jumped up and grabbed his glasses and ran off. So, you know, all the little funny stories. Most of them happened to him. But, um, you know, um, it, it was a great time. It was a great oh. time. You know, it's funny when you uh, back to the first story you told, which all three are great stories, actually. Yeah. But thinking of the look at the foreigners thing. It's funny because, you know, there's I think we think of America as a place of such diversity. But I think there's a lot of places even in our country where we're still very, uh, very, very white, you know. Yeah. And uh, I was just thinking of a funny story. My, my cousin, who's actually nearly 30 years old now, um, they, the family has this funny story of him. I, they had, they grew up, you'd have to understand, in, in this little bitty town in Indiana. Um, I think there was maybe one black person in the whole community, and I think they were adopted, you know, like as far <laughs> as in, in the school system or anything. So um, when he was really young, especially like maybe five or six, just kind of had no experience of, of any sort of diversity. 
And uh, one of the funny stories they tell is they they had gone out of state uh, to on vacation or something, and they're in line at a McDonald's, and uh, and there's a family of of black people, and and uh, my little cousin he kind of just very politely he grabbed his uh, his mom and kind of pulled her down, got her ear, and he said, "Mom, look at the Chinese people." <laughs> he said, <laughs> you know, so uh, it's just kind of funny to just sometimes our ignorance, our our innocent ignorance at times and yeah. things like that. We just don't know how so i'm sure you had a lot of great stories about that so well tell us quickly um about your husband and your and your kids and uh, i know you're a teacher tell us a little bit about your profession as a teacher now so um i have been a teacher well i've been in education for 14 years um and 11 of those years i've been a teacher i've mostly been taught esl so you know my love for people from other countries and cultures kind of flowed over into my work, and um, it's been a great joy to teach English learners um, and work with families who are immigrants or who have come from other countries, um, and it's it's very rewarding work, um, and I feel like I've kind of been able to be an advocate for English learners uh, for a long time, um, and now the past three years, I've actually worked um, for the public school district in Nashville for their Office of English Learners um, as an instructional coach. So basically, I, I work more with teachers now, and the idea is I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, um, better equip them to um, better instruct their English learners. Um, so I do some, like, professional development type things, and then I also do kind of, like, one-on-one mentoring and coaching, and I do work with students sometimes. Um, so it's... Um, that's been an interesting thing for me to do as well. Um, so um, lots, of, lots of good stories and lots of good times there. Um, my husband is also a teacher. He actually um, works for a private Christian school here in Nashville. And um, so he got into teaching, too. He started as uh, he was actually a music major at Trebekah. Oh, wow. OK, so he actually started as their music teacher. And um, and then he um, he actually went and got his master's at um Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, England. Wow. It's like in conjunction with the University of Manchester. Okay. Um, and um, so he actually got a degree in a, a, a master's in theology. So <laughs> his job kind of morphed into he became the uh, the head of the Bible department and started teaching the Bible classes um, at the Christian school. So um, it is a interdenominational school. So there's you know lots of different Christians from lots of different types of churches that, that go there. Um, and there, it's not like tied to one denomination or one specific church. There are even a few, I mean, I know there's a Muslim kid that goes there. I think there's a Hindu family. So there are even a few people who aren't Christian who go there. But, um, we do have two children and they are nine and seven and they actually go to that school with Stephen. So, um, we're very blessed to have that opportunity to, um, send them to a private school and, you know, we get a little bit of a tuition break and, um, you know, they enjoy it there. But I, I kind of feel like, um, I say I'm Orthodox and I am Orthodox, but I think um, I, I still feel like I'm Protestant sometimes too, and there's still that that influence in our lives very much. Wow. Well, since you since you're talking about Orthodox, um, let's talk about that a little bit of your journey. I know a lot of listeners may be wondering because. Uh, the Orthodox Church, I think, in the U.S. is much smaller than it is other places, and so a lot of people don't aren't really familiar with it. Uh, but it's actually the 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 oldest. <laughs> it's I don't want to say denomination because it's pre-denominational. I mean, it mm-hmm. goes all the way back uh, to the faith of the apostle 
apostles. I can't even say apostles, <laughs> right? Um, but it goes all the way back to the faith of the apostles. And I think most people just think, well, the Catholic Church, that's the, the oldest right. and longest. But actually, the Orthodox Church is. And I, I think it's cool they can stem... Uh, all the way back, they can trace their roots, you know, and you could probably meet people who would tell you, well, you know, my family, we used to go out with Jesus for lunch after, you know, <laughs> synagogue or whatever. So, um, but anyway, I'll, again, I'll quit talking and let you talk, but I know a lot of people are going to be unfamiliar with the Orthodox faith, all that is saying. So tell us about your journey. And, and I, I'm, I'm fairly certain if you're like me, cause I was a Nazarene pastor's kid. Uh, I grew up knowing nothing about the Orthodox faith, so I'd love to hear about your journey. Okay, um, and I want to preface this by saying, you know, I'm just speaking, I've been in Orthodoxy for nine years, and I've been in an Orthodox church in America, so I'm just speaking from my own experience. Um, I can't talk too much about what Orthodoxy looks like outside of America. Does okay. that make sense? That so, makes total um, sense. I just wanted to kind of say that, but um, so... Um, yeah, you know, I kind of grew up with the idea that, um, or being told that, um, churches who were like super ritualistic, like Catholics, I knew Catholics, um, I didn't really know much about Orthodox, but, you know, super ritualistic churches were wrong because, um, they didn't really have a personal relationship with God and it was just all meaningless ritual and there, um, there was no meaning. So, and I actually went to, I, I went to a Catholic international school in Bangkok, um, and, uh, you didn't have to take catechism if you weren't Catholic or anything. Um, but, you know, there was a, a church on campus and, you know, a lot of the students were Catholic. And um, it actually didn't seem to bother my parents that, that we were there. Um, but I think kind of that idea was was always there. Like, you know, there has to be a feeling, you know, there has to be meaning. You can't just do things over and over again because they become meaningless. So, um, you know, I think once I came to college, um you know, I think I kind of suddenly realized that, like, my Christian faith had really lived and and thrived in in evangelism. And, like, all of a sudden I was, you know, I had lived in a Buddhist country where I had to stand up for my faith. And, you know, I was that girl in high school that organized CU at the pole and organized <laughs> prayer groups and, you know, talked about God all the time. And um, so, um, you know... I don't, um, I'm trying, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. So anyway, when I came to college, it was like, all these people are Christians. I don't have to stand up for anything. I don't have to, you know, I don't know. It felt like suddenly I realized my faith had been so tied to the need to evangelize and the need to be different. Mm. And now I was just like everybody else. So, um, <laughs> I don't think that that necessarily made me less of a spiritual person. I mean, I still went to college and all, I mean, went to church and everything during college, but, um, you know, I think I, I kind of, hit a place where I was, I mean, I think normally that's kind of normal for most people. You're on your own, you're out of your parents' influence, and you start thinking about things in a different way. Mm -hmm. And what I found toward the end of college is, um, you know, I just started feeling like church was just so based on emotionalism, and that worship was so based on um, almost even manufacturing a feeling of the Holy Spirit. And I say that with trepidation because I'm, I'm, I know a lot of people would, would say, no, that's not what happened. But, sure. you know, sometimes you're sitting there and, the you know, the song, whatever the prayer chorus is getting played over and over again. And I remember thinking, okay, is this just to get people to come to the altar, you know, and pray? Is this just so we can, you know, so the pastor can feel good? Or is this really the Holy Spirit? Um, and I almost started to feel like this disconnect. So I would go to chapel or I would go to church and I would feel very close to the Lord and I would feel um, 
joy. And then, you know, I would walk out of that church door and not think of God at all, like for the rest of the day. Mm. Um, and I think, um, I don't know, to me, it just felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect. Mm. Um, and I remember being in, um, I guess it was senior year was the Christian life and ministry class. And basically what we did in the class was we read different books about different people who all claimed to be Christian. And we were trying to figure out, are they Christian or not? Cause they didn't all look like my little <laughs> definition of Christian. Like right. we read, um, salvation on sand mountain, which is about snake handlers. Right. You know, and I remember professor Hoskins was like, so are they Christian? You know? Um, <laughs> and we talked about Hutterites who were sort of like Amish. Mm-hmm. Um, and we read Kathleen Norris's book, Dakota, and she became a, you know, she was Protestant, but then she started getting involved with Benedictine monks. Um, and I remember her husband was a um, bartender. And I remember we were arguing over whether or not he could be a Christian because he was a bartender. Um, <laughs> and that was a valid argument at that time in my life, you know, mm-hmm. because I'd grown up without, you know, alcohol being in the picture whatsoever. Um, and now I would say, yeah, sure. I, you know, I think you can be a bartender and be a Christian. But, um, you know, it, it was just kind of that struggle to, to think outside the box and say, okay, if this person's definition is not exactly the same as mine, are they still a Christian? Because if I look at their life, it seems like they're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, and kind of flowing over into the first few years of marriage, um, I started exploring liturgy hmm. um, and more liturgical um, aspects, um, trying to figure out what that was. It seemed to be kind of a popular thing at the time among some of the religion majors. And, um, I mean, I even remember toward the end of my senior year, I think, um, there was an Episcopal church I would go to for evening prayers every now and then, like at five thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, my roommate had a book of common prayer and sometimes we would like read prayers together at night. And I started beginning to learn about, um, about liturgy. So that was sort of the easing. I'm still not to orthodoxy yet, so I'll have to speed up. Um, <laughs> no, that's fine. But, Take your time. Yeah. But, you know, basically, um, one of the books I read at this time that really helped me was called Evangelical is Not Enough um, by Thomas Howard. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, and I think that is a little bit of a contentious, contentious title, I will say. But, um, you know, basically, it was written for a man who was an evangelical and became, I believe he became Catholic. Okay. Um, and it, he really kind of talked about liturgy in a way that a layperson could understand. Hmm. Um, and so between that and I was kind of a little bit, you know, delving into liturgical experiences, um, I basically began to learn that um, it it wasn't meaningless ritual, that those rituals had deep and rich meaning um, and that I, I just hadn't known that my whole life. And so um, what finally brought me to orthodoxy was, again, a book. Um, so I'm a big reader, but um, that I just happened upon at a bookstore one day early in our marriage called At the Corner of Easton Now. Um, and it's by Frederica Matthews Green, who is an orthodox priest's wife. Um, and she was basically sort of um, talking about um, her experience in the Orthodox Church, and she would talk a little bit about something in Orthodox liturgy, and then she would talk a little bit about something in, like, everyday life. So she was sort of juxtaposing the East part and the Now part. Um, and I was just really, really intrigued. Hmm. Um, and so um spent a couple of year or two in the Episcopal Church, but eventually we ended up going to the Orthodox Church, mostly from that book, um, because I was so interested in it. Um, so... Um, why Orthodox? 
Um, one of the things that drew me to Orthodox was, um, the icons Hmm. and that's an issue with some people and we can get into whether or not it's idolatry. Um, but for me, (laughs) um, you know, there's such a sense of peace and beauty, um, entering an Orthodox church and seeing those icons. And I mean, no matter if there's light source or not, I swear those halos glow. Hmm. Um, so, um, I mean, they're, I think they're painted with actual gold, um, gold leaf. So that's probably why, but, um, the well, pra- yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I yeah, I've I've been amazed just uh, kind of learning more about icons myself because I uh-huh. think they are beautiful. And um, I, I recently on one of those podcasts, uh, Our Life in Christ, uh, they had I, they have several episodes on icons, and I was just so fascinated about how you know they don't just grab a random artist and say paint us an icon. Um, I mean, there's this real. Um, it's almost like an apprenticeship that they have to go through with with someone who has, uh, you know, a theological background and understanding of things. Usually, a priest or someone, and they, there's just a lot of uh, of real, um, just thoughtful effort that goes into to creating these icons and the spiritual message they want to portray. And uh, so, I find that very fascinating. I I think in some ways. Uh, you know, they when they talk about the icons being that they don't want photorealism because they're actually trying to portray a spiritual truth. And and I, I was thinking one day I said, you know, I think that's why I don't care for movies of the Bible sometimes yeah. because because when we're trying to make it so real, for some reason it just feels so fake, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it doesn't matter. I mean, Mel Gibson's company Icon, you know. <laughs> I mean, they. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. And and you know it's I, I don't want to say whether or not the Passion of the Christ was a good movie but but there's something about like when we try to go so real with something we're we're actually making it less real in some way so I just found that fascinating about the icons and the reasons for that that um, they don't want photorealism they're going for this um, this deeper spiritual truth that is a reality that's that's more real than what we could do with photorealism and so I, anyway that was just something yeah. I found very fascinating about the icons. Yeah, you can't just take a class and be an iconographer. It's a long <laughs> right. process, and even the iconographers are saying prayers and things as they're making the icons. So, um, mm. you know, I think, and I think there's something to be said for beauty in worship. And I almost feel like, um, we want to get away from that in the evangelical church because that's, there's this idea it's going to take away from worship or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, I think when, you know, you're, you're really moved by something, a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful piece of art. And icons are definitely more than just art. But, um, you know, I think that what I love about orthodoxy is that it's a body and soul, what I call a body and soul faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's, I'm kind of getting, I'll get back to icons. But what sure. I mean by that is, you know, before I think my faith was like in my head, mm. um, I could list my beliefs. You know, I could proclaim my beliefs. I could answer every question you had about God, um, or I could try to at least. Um, <laughs> but there wasn't like a physical dimension to my faith. Um, and I and I love that orthodoxy is a body and soul faith. Um, so there's a spiritual dimension and there's a physical dimension, and they interact. Um, so like all the rituals that you see, for example, crossing oneself, you know, what we're doing when we're crossing oneself is we're, we're – Physically stating our beliefs, I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because, you know, you're moving your thing across your body, your hand across your body three times. For mm-hmm. Orthodox Christians, um, when you when you fold your hand um, to cross yourself, um, so you're, um, let's see, 
So you've got two fingers that are together to represent um, the dual nature of Christ, that Christ was God and man. And then you've got three fingers that are actually down. Um, I'm sorry. No, you've got three fingers. The two fingers are down, and then you've got your three fingers together, your thumb and your first two fingers together for to represent the Trinity. Hmm. And then your last two fingers are down for the two the dual natures of Christ. So you're okay. not just like waving your hand. Like every action is something. Um, it's a way of proclaiming what you believe. You know, hmm. praying the Apostle or the Nicene Creed or stating that in the church, which Orthodox Church isn't the only church that does that. But, um, you know, to me it became... Um, almost envisioning myself throwing my hands back across the centuries and across time and grasping hands with the actual apostles themselves, you know, mm-hmm. or the early church fathers. Um, so it was a way to say I'm part of this huge movement and this huge family of faith. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm just going through the motions for um, for the sake of ritual or, you know, that means that my, you know, if I go through these motions and I'm a Christian, you know, but every moment, motion, every act um, is kind of a, a physical, a mingling of this physical and spiritual awareness. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, so, yes, yes. Um, and a lot of people will say, you know, we hear the term like multimedia, and what that usually means is, you know, there's a PowerPoint and there's a projector and there's big speakers and that kind of thing. But um, I've even heard priests say, you know, the Orthodox Church is truly a multimedia experience because all of your senses um, are are engaged and aware. So you're looking at the icons, you're smelling the incense, which represents our prayers lifting up to God. Um, you're going, your body is going through all these movements, whether it's crossing yourself or standing to represent the risen Christ. And um, we stand through a lot of the, of the service, uh, unfortunately, but <laughs> it gets tiring. <laughs> but, um, you're listening to the beautiful, um, to the beautiful music and you're listening to the bells of the censer. Um, so there's all these things going on that's engaging your senses. Um, you're coming forward and you're taking communion and you're tasting the bread and the wine. Um, so you're not just, worshiping God with like your mind or your heart, which is kind of what evangel, you know, the Nazarene or evangelicalism was to mm-hmm. me, but you're worshiping him with your whole body. Sure. I've, I'm just curious. Have you ever read any uh, books by Yaroslav Pelikan? Um, who was a theologian and historian for the Orthodox Church? He passed away a few years ago, but uh, he he re- has written several books on the creeds, actually. Mm-hmm. And have, have you had a chance to read any of his? Um, books? Can you name some of his books? Not off the top of I my know the head. Better I mean, than, you yeah. know what? He's he's written so much, um, and he's had like commentaries actually throughout uh, Pentecost and. Uh, preparing music for our worship services, I was reading a lot of his commentary on the book of Acts, uh, just because he's very insightful with things. And, you know, a lot of times mm-hmm. uh, the Orthodox Church, because it is so connected to the faith of the apostles, um, it, it just things that we, we would just overlook that, that are probably very clear in the text even, but it's mm-hmm. just like, like, oh, uh, why didn't that dawn on me before? You know, <laughs> things right. like that. Right. Uh, but anyway, I, you, as I heard you talking about creeds and different things, he, he yeah. shared, uh, before he passed away, um, on a radio show I was listening to, uh, he shared what was his favorite creed, which is actually the, uh, 
the Maasai Creed, which was written uh-huh. from Africa, and mm-hmm. uh, and I just love it. It's become one of my favorites as well. But um, yeah. anyway, just to, to interject, I was thinking about writers and different people that I've read. But yeah, I think some of the common writers that some people have heard of are like Alexander Schmemann or um, Bishop Callisto Ware. He wrote a book. I think he's the one that wrote the Orthodox Way. So I mean, there's a few writers that people who more theologian types will know, but. Sure. Um, you know, there's not, I think that's kind of a, um, a negative about orthodoxy. I mean, you can find some blogs and things about orthodoxy, um, but sometimes it's written at a real high theological level. Sure. Um, and so I've actually started a, um, a series on my blog, the first and third Monday of the month, where I do ask about orthodoxy and readers can ask questions. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not a theologian. You know, I mean, I have read some, um, but I just try to kind of talk about my experience and and put it on kind of a level that anybody can understand. Because sure. um, I think there's a need for that. You know, there's a need for people to know about orthodoxy. Um, and there's a lot of wonderful um, older and ancient writings. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that we can have some newer writings as well. Sure. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, definitely. Uh, but, and that's, you know what, Let, let's do a little bit of that right now, actually, if you don't mind, because I think that might be kind of a neat way to go into, because I know you get several questions, whether it be your blogs or other people, or people asking you ridiculous things like, you know, why are you not a Christian anymore, what, you know, <laughs> or things like that, like they don't understand, yeah. like it is Christian, it's more Christian than probably what you understand, you know, but, yeah. uh, but you know, there's just a lot of frequently asked questions, so so let me get the ball rolling, okay, and I'll, I'll kind of okay. ask you a question or two and then maybe you can kind of uh, well yeah and you you know obviously this is sort of just a a conversation two people that are talking about a a faith that's different than the one they're familiar with and uh, and so since i'm a musician um i'll i'll ask you a music question okay Okay. because i know um that it seems like to me from from what i understand now i don't get to worship in an orthodox church because (laughs) i have a a job where i'm in churches uh Mm -hmm. doing things uh but it seems like from you know whenever i've you, you thankfully you can watch services online there's some youtube channels and different things and it seems like the music for the most part is very classically based um would would you say that has been your experience whenever you have been um i mean at, at your particular church is that something that is um pretty yeah, um- yeah. I'm not an expert on this trick, so I'll, okay, I'll try. Sure. But um, yeah, so there's the you know it's it's all a cappella. Um, it's very kind of I would say Byzantine type um, chanting. Um, there are all kinds of different like hymns and songs and um, ones that go along with certain feasts and things we're celebrating in the church at different times of the year. Um, so I um, I have not. Um, join the choir at my Orthodox church yet. Um, I have thought about it many times. So, and I no longer have the excuse of, you know, my kids are too little and I have to watch them during the service. So, um, you know, I've thought about it, but it is sure. all, it is all acapella and it all is, you know, there's, um, it is more classical and more ancient. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really beautiful. Um, sure. there's, there's beautiful harmonies. We actually have a, a new church building that's, uh, only been open for like about a year, um, real high ceilings. So the acoustics are beautiful. Hmm. Um, but you won't, you won't usually find a, um, you know, piano or an organ or any kind of instrument in, sure. in an Orthodox church. So, well, well, let me ask you about that. And then you may not know, and that's, and that's totally fine. Uh, but you've been talking about, you know, how on your blog you're trying to write some, uh, 
some answers that may be a little more uh, easy to understand for the average mm-hmm. layperson. Um, I, I'm just curious, like, why do you think that the music has remained um, more ancient and, and like just a cappella? Like, why have the uh, Orthodox traditions resisted uh, more instrumental music and things in their services? Or, or um, do you know? I don't know if there's a specific answer to the music, mm-hmm. um, but I will say in general, Orthodoxy really prides itself on um, not changing with culture. Sure. Um, and not and and re and um, continuing to have kind of an ancient outlook, um, not getting sucked into kind of the um, I don't know for lack of a better word vices of of culture. I mean, I think for our culture today, you know, like consumerism and you know always needing to have the new thing and sure. um, digital, you know, social media and digital technology. You know, I think there's good, you know there's some good things to technology and social media, but it's all in moderation. You know, I want my kids to, you know, keep up with what other kids are learning to do, but I also want them to enjoy the outdoors and go play outside and have face to face conversations. So, um, you know, but I think that you will, you will find, um, you will find some Orthodox Christians who are really, um, fervent about fighting against culture mm-hmm. um, and kind of keeping that I- idea of, um, you know, maintaining, um, I don't know, kind of a, a peaceful life, make sure you have integrated silence and prayer into your days and that, you, you know, you're focused on God um, and you're not always getting turned away by things, you know, just constantly distracted by things. Sure. Um, you'll find some other Orthodox Christians who are a little bit more laid back about that and who are like, you know, I live in the world, you know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm not going to throw away everything that the world brings to me, you know. Sure. So I think one of the beautiful things about Orthodoxy um, in that regard is that, um, you know, there's there's really almost this belief that everything can be redeemed, um, that time can be redeemed, that the creation can be redeemed, um, and that, you know, things can be made holy and made sacred, Um so I really like that. Well, yeah, and I I can respect definitely that viewpoint. I I feel some of the the tension that's there, and I, of course I have for a few years as a as a worship leader in a Protestant church because there is this sense of um, at times you're 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 feeling like you have to keep up pace, you know, whether yeah. it's the the latest uh, projection or computer thing that you have to have or the, uh, you know, a lot of churches are really big into lights and smoke. And I mean, it, it almost creates a, a sort of almost concert atmosphere, which is very common. And, um, and, it, and I do feel like at times, you know, uh, like, wow, we're, we're going to get left behind if we don't learn the, the new top 40 worship right, music, right. you know, that's coming out. So, uh, while I, while I appreciate it on some level, the, the creativity and the artistry that I think is there. And, and as one who writes myself and I try to write for the church, uh, you know, pretty much a hundred percent of what I do other than one for my wife or my son every now and then that I'll write a song. <laughs> I try uh-huh. to write to, yeah. to serve the church in some way. Um, but in many, ways you know i i i find that kind of thought about music in the church refreshing too um Mm -hmm. just the idea of of not feeling like you have to keep pace and i think you've probably experienced this um and i know that they're they're finding and i'm finding people that i talk to especially younger people they're so burnt out on technology because there's just so much of it and i've heard people say that 
that they go to a small church without any technology, not necessarily orthodox or anything, yeah. but just kind of the little country church thing that right. is kind of behind the times simply because it's the one place they feel like they can escape from society yeah. for a while. Right. And uh, and so I think that's a beautiful thing that the Orthodox Church has, has done. And, you know, I can really appreciate that about them for sure. So. Yeah, and I mean, I, I will say that, you know, sometimes I'll go back and visit, um, you know, a Nazarene church or a Protestant church. And, and you know, I know I went to my, um, I went to a funeral recently. Um, my great aunt passed away several months ago. And, um you know, we sang some of the old hymns, and I thought, I, I really kind of miss, miss this. You know, we yeah. sang some songs I hadn't sang in a while. So, um, you know, I think, like I said, moderation. You know, I, I sure. think it's good to, um, you know, it's not wrong to necessarily um, want to get new technology. But I think, you know, um, there, there's, a, there's an Orthodox blogger, popular blogger, Father Stephen Freeman, and he has a blog called Glory to God for All Things. And I read something recently where he said, um, if your church service isn't boring, it's probably modern. And the opposite <laughs> of that is if your church service is boring, it's probably Orthodox. So <laughs> um, to some extent, that's true. Um, the songs do change a little bit. Um, but you are doing pretty much the same thing. It's not, you know, it's not flashy. You know, the point is to be the opposite of distracted. The point is to be present. Sure. And I feel like, um, you know, my, my children, you know, they live in American culture and, um, you know, they tend to measure time by like what holidays coming up. So when's it going to be Fourth of July? When's it going to be Halloween? When's it going to be Thanksgiving? You know, and, and kind of the, the, the popular things in, in culture. And that's kind of what I love about orthodoxy and their idea of redeeming the time and having a liturgical year. Um, and we have um, several, well, we have 12 big feasts that we celebrate uh, throughout the year. And some are your normal, like Easter, Christmas, Epiphany. Mm-hmm. Um, and some will be things in the life of Mary. Um, so the, the church year actually opens um, September 1st and the very first feast, September 8th is um, the, okay, hold on the birth of Mary. And then the last feast of the church year is in August and it's the death of Mary. So yeah. our, our liturgical year actually opens and closes um, with, with Mary, you yeah. know, instead of Jesus. But um, and then another part of that redeeming the time is just um, Kairos versus Kronos time, I guess. Yeah. If, you know what I'm saying? Yes, so, I, know. I do. But maybe some of our listeners wouldn't know. Okay. Do you want to explain that just a little bit? Yeah, and I'm I'm watching the time, so I'll try to stop you. No, so you know what? <laughs> you know what? If we go over, I'll just turn it into two podcasts. So okay, don't worry that's about fine. it. Um, so, um, Chronos time is basically your chronological time where it just time is linear; it goes in one direction, and that's it. Um, and then Kairos time. Um, I may be pronouncing it wrong, maybe, but I always say Kairos time is. Um, Close enough. Ky- yeah. Kairos, I think Kairos, is how I say okay. it, but you got it. Um. Like time out of time, sacred time, God's time, um, thinking of time not in a linear manner, um, but in a manner that's more kind of interactive. So, you know, of course, a liturgical year would be kind of one example where we're, we're actually entering in and trying to relive the baptism of Christ or his crucifixion and resurrection, that kind of thing. Um, but also even every Sunday, for Orthodox is a little Easter or a little Pascha. Our word for Easter is Pascha. So it's not just once a year, but every Sunday we're celebrating the risen Christ. Um, when we come together in liturgy, there's this belief that it's almost like this film between heaven and earth um, 
gets folded back and we are praising the Lord along with the angels and along with the saints that have gone before us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're looking at the icons and they're not just something on a, you know, a picture on a piece of wood. They're a window into heaven. Um, so, you know, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses um, that are worshiping with us. Um, so really this belief that, um, you know, we are already in our eternity in, in a sense, um, which, you know, I think a lot of, evangelicals can probably agree with but to some extent you grow up you I grew up thinking okay you know I'm doing this so that when I die I go to heaven but it's just the idea that you know time can we redeem the time can we look at it differently and say you know we're in our salvation we're we're with God we're in our eternity now our transition from here to heaven shouldn't be that big of a deal does that make sense oh yeah And, 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 you know, the idea that I I think what we've, um, we've been so influenced by by a lot of Greek thought and things. Mm -hmm. Whereas we think, like Plato thought that, you know, the body was going to separate from the soul and go somewhere else after death. And then a lot of Christians, that's kind of what they think. But the whole idea that that we have going back to the early church even is the idea that the heaven is actually intersecting with this world, you know, that we're actually whole people and whole persons. And uh, I I love like the transfiguration story where we see, um, you know, the heavenly is is intersecting again in a physical way, you know, where we see uh, Moses and Elijah with Jesus and all of them there. And to me, it's sort of this picture of like, okay. There's this day coming when the whole earth will be transfigured, you know, and the whole idea that that these barriers that are there uh, will be torn down. And I, and I think that's a beautiful, a wonderful truth that the Orthodox Church actually reminds us of and needs to remind us Protestants of is the fact that, that heaven and, it, it, well, really hell even, <laughs> both, yeah. they've started now. I mean, it's it's the mm-hmm. idea that we are already living in this present reality and and that's good stuff. That's stuff to hold on to there for sure. Yeah. Um, well, just again for for the sake of time, and like I said, if we if we go over, that's no big deal. We've gone over before on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what are some of the the most frequently asked questions that you get? And we don't have to do a ton of them or anything, but I'm sure that you're asked questions all the time, uh, probably especially by friends that maybe even let's be honest, probably family, you know, yeah. even that that are wondering like, whoa, what are you doing there? This is so far from where you came from or whatever. But, right. but maybe just some of your favorite questions questions that you're asked and i know sometimes they're probably even some ludicrous things but let's hear them anyway okay so um you know i think the first question is usually um do they believe in salvation you know like they believe in Mm. forgiveness through christ and um forgiveness of sins and that kind of thing um a lot of times people will ask about icons because people tend to think that's um idolatry a lot of orthodox christians will kiss icons um and or appear to pray to icons or pray to saints so there's questions about that um i get a lot of questions about mary what's the big deal about mary do you worship mary um why why make such a big deal about that um i will get questions about you know women in the church um orthodoxy only ordains men so i'll get questions about that um i'm trying to think those are some of my common ones. I mean, for people who are like completely unfamiliar with liturgy or any kind of ritual, you know, they will ask about that. Like, what is all the stuff that's going on? You know, mm-hmm. why are the priests wearing all these big fancy robes with colors, with sure. different colors and that kind of thing? What do all the rituals mean? Um, 
And and just the fact, you know, I'll I'll say this. Sorry to interrupt you again. Okay. But one thing that's very interesting to me when when you're mentioning those things, and just like even the priest wearing something, I I love uh, I love the intentionality of it mm-hmm. because I think sometimes we meander in Protestantism. Um, and I I you know I'm I'm I feel like I'm beating up on my own uh, my own family here, and so <laughs> but but I, I can make fun because they are one, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like sometimes we we don't understand this idea of of having an intentionality of when we come together. It's like we uh, our calendar, you know. It's we even chase, you know. We're getting close here at this time of year. It's going to be Fourth of July again. I'm going to have to go through that. Oh no, we've got to designate God's time for America's time, right, you know. And right. and and there's just not that idea that's there. It's intentional mm-hmm. worship, you know, of God, and it's intentionally there. So uh, I anyway, I was just going to say I really appreciate that about the intentionality of like there there actually is a reason why they're wearing the robes and mm-hmm. there is a reason for why this happens in the service and there is re- and they know why you know it's not yeah. just a matter of oh this would be cool because i saw rick warren do this at saddleback let's do this right. you know it's right. like it's like no we have an intentional purpose here behind it so yeah and i really try to bring that home um as well there's this idea of sort of bringing the church home in orthodoxy um a lot of people will have a home altar or or an icon corner where they will have a place of prayer in their home um, with with some icons. Because when you become Orthodox, you kind of you choose you get to choose or your parents choose for you a patron saint. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we we just have it's actually just a little short bookshelf um, that we call our home altar. Um, and we even have cloths in the different liturgical colors. Some of them are um, scarves. Some of them are just like things I found like table runners. I mean, it's nothing fancy or that I got from any Orthodox store or anything. But um, <laughs> And so I just kind of try to remember like we just changed the cloths over to green because green is our color for Pentecost. And we just had Pentecost. So, um, you know, I try to remember to, you know, remind my children and um, talk to them about that. And they, they you know, they pretty much learn the colors by now um and i won't say we have prayers every single night we try to do evening prayers um after dinner in the evening um we were doing really well until about pasca like during lent we mm-hmm. really stuck to it and since pasca or easter we've um we kind of fallen off the wayside a little bit but um but you know i do try to have that presence in our home and even if sometimes we don't do family prayers my children might see me at prayer early in the morning or something like that um and you know trying to think about ways to bring you know the church home and that idea of kairos time and um you know, making it seem real in our everyday life. Very true. Well, one thing I wanted to I wanted to ask you about while I had you here are are there any parts of uh, of the faith that you find particularly um, meaningful or or maybe even frustrating or joyful? I I think one thing that, that you know probably all of us do because we're hint, we're human. Uh, even the most wonderful things we can find frustration in at times. Yeah. Uh, so I was just curious about, you know, because that, that is a big, uh, a big change for sure for you to go mm-hmm. from this Nazarene background, which I'm very familiar with and you're yeah. very familiar with and walking into an Orthodox tradition. Is there anything about that that you find particularly joyful or particularly frustrating or, or just what, probably lots of joy, probably fewer frustrations than joys, but I'd just be interested yeah. to hear. So as far as joyful, um, I started getting into this and then never got back to it. But, you know, really the iconography is one of the big things that drew me to um, to orthodoxy. 
Um, and, and some of that includes the rich history of all the saints and, and, and stories that I've learned uh, of these people who can be uh, role models for me as Christians. Um, and, and also the practice of praying with icons. So, you know, basically, um, People will seem like they are praying to a saint, um, but basically there is this belief that the saints are in heaven with God and that they could, they can intercede for us. So they don't have like supernatural power of their own or they're not divine. But, um, you know, if they're with God, couldn't they go ask him, you know, take a request to him on our behalf? Um, so, you know, basically praying or asking a saint to bless you, um, or honoring a saint is just a way to, you know, I think, um, one, acknowledge that we're all part of this great spiritual body of Christ. Um, and, and also, um, you know, it's almost or a lot of Orthodox people compare it to asking a friend to pray for you. Sure. Because if we if we do go back to that idea of we're already in our eternity and we, you know, we can't see them. But these these people who have gone before us who are in heaven are real um, and, and they are, are present somewhere in some reality. Um you know, it's, it's the same thing as if I asked you, Rick, will you pray for me? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and I just, again, I, I go back to that very simple, quiet beauty, um, and how deeply that speaks to my soul. Um, and another thing I think about orthodoxy is, um, I don't have to feel something all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, in, you know, before as a teenager, I just felt like if I didn't feel close to God or if I didn't have this feeling of God, I always thought something was wrong. Like, what have I done wrong? Have I sinned? What have I, you know, and I, I mean, I had devotions every single day as a teenager. You know, I was, I was authentically seeking God and very seriously wanted to know him, but it was just like, I would, I mean, I don't know. For some reason, I just like, I have felt like I always had to feel him. So, um, you know, for orthodoxy, you know, sometimes I'll go through a service and there will be an emotional response and sometimes there's not. And either way, it's OK. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I second guess myself. Don't second guess myself as much. Um, like I said, sometimes I used to wonder if, you know, in a service like was the music just being used to manipulate me to go to the altar or whatever Um or am I crying because we're singing just as I am for the fifth time? Or am I crying because I truly sense God, you know, God's uh-huh. presence? So I don't second guess if I really sense the presence of, of, of the Lord, you know, in a liturgy. I, I don't second guess it as much, you know. But sure. I think um, I think because it's not based on, like, feeling or, or my mind, that whole body-soul thing, you know, it feels more holistic. Mm-hmm. Um so as part as and also I was going to say joyful as far as like salvation um they definitely do believe in like you know forgiveness of sins through Jesus and all that um I think orthodox Christians will view salvation no more as a process it's like a lifelong process mm-hmm. I think a lot of evangelicals can agree to that idea sure um so you know I think that that that's another part where it's like you know, I'm not perfect. I may screw up, but like, you know, this is this process that I'm in and I'm, I am continuing to move toward God and my salvation. Sure. As far as frustrating, um, you know, I, I do think that some, um, sometimes orthodoxy can look very exclusive. Um, so for example, we, um, like we don't offer communion to people who aren't orthodox. Okay. So that does kind of bother me, um, a little bit. Um, but 
You know, I think it goes back to that idea where the Orthodox Church does claim that it's like the earliest church or the first church or the original church. Um, now, if you talk to Catholics, you know, they're going to say that, you know, Orthodoxy broke off from them and Orthodox Christians are going to say Catholics broke off from them. So, right. you know, I'm not going to get into that debate. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel like when I first became Orthodox, I did kind of look down on other traditions, I think, you know, um, and now I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I think I'm more, I can see truth in a lot of different churches. Um, this is a church I have chosen right now. Um, this is the church that I feel like I sense so much truth in. Um, but I'm not like, you know, oh my gosh, your church is totally wrong because you're not Orthodox. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, and I, I think in some way this church has chosen you, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it really, it's, it sounds like to me that, you know, some of the things that, that I'm sure we both grew up with sensing, um, oftentimes we'll, we'll find that what we grew up with isn't always enough. Like, like that book that you had talked about, Evangelical is not enough. Yeah. Um, I think at times there's something that we are so, um, lacking because certain things have, have, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of like, uh, you know, you need to eat different kinds of food, and if you only have one kind, you, you feel deficient, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, this suits you, and like the Orthodox Church has chosen you in many ways, mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about the choice you've made, but I feel like there's something bigger, you know, at work, and if we, if we want to trust God's hand and guiding too, I think He's, He's led you there. That's a, that's a beautiful thing to think yeah. about, it really is. So. Um, well, you know what? I'm trying to figure out what things I want to ask you real quick because we're right at about an hour almost okay. here in our recording time. Um, I, I think I might just refer people to one of your favorite posts that you've written on your website. One of my favorite posts of yours that I've read, and and I'm not saying I've read them all. There's a lot more <laughs> I need to get into. Um, but I, I think just because it resonates with me in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and, and I, I still am a part of the Nazarene Church, but I love your blog. I'm a Nazbin, and, uh, and this might be why I'm guilty is the name mm -hmm. of it. So uh, I want to encourage our listeners to to go to carissanoxorell.com and look up some of her blog posts. And I highly recommend the one that's that's titled I'm a Nazbin. That's spelled N-A-Z-B-E-E-N. Um, because there's a there's a long journey that, that you've come through. And, and mm -hmm. you, you talk a little bit about even the journey your parents have gone through and mm -hmm. and uh, you're you're very transparent about that and you know after um you know years of of parents role committed to each other and being pastors and then your parents went through uh, a, a divorce and um and and i i just appreciate your transparency on mm -hmm. that and just being able to talk and it seems like you know god is even working in the midst of that in in their lives too in mm -hmm. in new ways and and helping them to come to new understandings about spirituality and faith and um, and, and and there's a lot. I mean, we could talk about you've you've experienced some loss, and um, mm -hmm. maybe we could do a follow up one of these days just yeah. to hear a little bit more of your story. But I think the thing that I I, I am most interested in because I, I'm finding that the way that the Orthodox faith describes salvation, um, and I feel like it from what my understanding is with a theology degree mm -hmm. is so much closer to the heart of of the beautiful gospel you know mm -hmm. than than what i often think i heard growing up uh, in various places because i think i always heard growing up 
I was always so scared of hell and so scared of, mm-hmm. you know, I, my name's going to get blotted out. Could you just maybe talk for a minute about how your understanding even of salvation has changed because of the influence of orthodoxy? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, to me, orthodoxy, let me just say that there's um, there's no manual to orthodoxy. Okay. Uh, so it's not like in the orth- in the Nazarene Church where if you want to know what you believe, you can look it up in the manual. Orthodoxy um, <laughs> is um, very much. Um, it's not a classroom faith; it's a student teaching faith. You know, like you're learning it as you go and as you experience it. So, um, but I actually had a recent blog post where I talked about the atonement because you know, do you decide for your sins? Make kind of makes sense when you're little, but at some point you start asking what that really means. Um, and my understanding, as far as orthodoxy, um, we did believe in the fall. We did believe that man was sinful. Um, um, but as far as like all the atonement theories, um, my understanding was basically we just had, we had broken our communion with God. We had a broken relationship with God and Christ came to restore that. Um, and another part of that, um, is and, and the Nazarene Church actually kind of has this with prevenient grace, but basically we don't believe that humans are totally depraved mm-hmm. or totally and completely evil without God because right. we are made in the image of God. Um, so and basically the idea is the image may have gotten distorted a little bit um, from the fall, um, and that you know we have inherited the consequence of sin, but we still are carrying that 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 image, and Christ came to redeem that image within us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that idea that um, we are not, you know, we are not terrible, horrible creatures, you know, that there still is some goodness in us because even with sin, because we are created in God's image. Um, but in my blog post, I had actually looked up an, an article from um, an Orthodox website, and it talked about how um, the Orthodox understanding of kind of atonement and salvation is is more incar- incarnational. Um, there's a famous um, quote, I think, from St. Athanasius that says, God became man so that man can become God, lowercase g. Um, and basically what that means is, you know, God became like us so we can become like him. Um, we don't believe man can become divine like God in his essence, but we do believe that we can become like God in his energies and in his love. Um, and so, you know, really that forgiveness, um, it's not a legal concept, but it's almost more of, um, it's almost more of being healed or being right. made whole. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I wrote, it's not being saved wasn't just, or that was from that article, isn't just being saved from something, but it's being made heal or being made whole. And that relationship with God is now fixed again. Um, and, you know, we can, we can be at one with God, you know, at atonement, if you break it up, says at one man. And I, I like that you can be at one with God. Yeah. Um, and I really think that kind of also fits in with, Almost a Nazarene idea of holiness. Um, I mean, I think that needs to be worked on a little bit because I prayed to get sanctified a lot, like <laughs> four times. But, um, you know, with this idea, but the idea is, you know, on this Christian journey, we are becoming more like Christ. Right. Um, and, and that's kind of the idea behind it. So, right. but, um, you know, it's- salvation, yeah. I was just going to say, it's interesting you mentioned that because I just wrote uh, an essay for a new book that's coming out, I believe, next year, uh, which is all um, probably people in their 30s and younger or people overseas. Uh, 
explaining their view of holiness and kind of how it differs from the Nazarene. But they're all Nazarenes, and uh, I'm excited about it because, like, my whole chapter was on holiness and monasticism and 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 the connection with that. And I'm excited to to see that hopefully we are branching out because what you're talking about. That really is very Wesley, and I think that was Wesley's approach. It wasn't punishment; it was healing, and I and it's the Calvinistic side that that has really you know hit on that. We are just completely depraved, awful people. But the idea that you know the Bible would teach us, and I, I think even the the ancient fathers you know that brought us the Bible would want us to understand that no, you're you're created beautiful in the image of God, and even even the the worst serial killer. That image is extremely tarnished, but it's under there. You know, right, it's right. it's there, and it can be redeemed. And and I, I I call it the you know the beautiful gospel because it is it, it, it's not original to me. I mean, it it is beautiful. The idea that it's like you said, it's not a law court. It's more of a hospital. It's the uh-huh. idea of a, yeah. of a healing versus a a punishment versus you know we're 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 so prone to in our society think about things in terms of law and we are litigation crazy it seems like yeah. but the the whole idea and even hospitals unfortunately with insurances and all that mess have got kind of a tarnished image anymore too but but the idea for Christians that that our salvation is actually a process of of being healed back to being with God, you know, and so I, I love that, and I, I appreciate you just being able to explain it a little bit more. I, I could talk about that for a while because I think it's a beautiful thing that that Christians need to latch on to. But I think I'm going to go ahead and call it though for okay. now because we've had about an hour conversation. Yeah. We'll have to get you on in the future. I, um, I I'd love to hear just more of your story and more of your thoughts, and uh, maybe if there's enough interest from listeners, maybe I can get some of them to to write in if you're listening you want to write some questions about uh, orthodoxy that carissa may or may not be able to answer um you can you can uh, i will try to find an answer uh, if i don't know it <laughs> that's right that's that's what i tell people too that's the best yeah. way to do it but uh, you can go to rickleyjames.com there's contact information there and you can uh, send in questions or just find me on facebook or twitter or whatever i'm, I'm all over the place so uh well carissa thank you so much and uh, any any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners of uh, Again, they have your website. Any other way that they can get in touch with you if they have any questions or anything like that? Um, yeah, my website's probably the best place to go, carissanoxsorrell.com. Um, and my email is right there on my website. Um, and like I said, I'm on Twitter. And I'm on, uh, I have a writer Facebook page on, on Facebook as well. Um, yeah, I would love to talk to anybody who had any questions or wanted to, to email me about orthodoxy. Great. Well, Carissa Knox Sorrell, thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.